Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab Bintunis. And today, our guest is Hanane B, speaking on the topic of Islamophobia and Muslim fiction. Hanane is a UK based Pakistani Irish British researcher and applied <laughs> linguistics. Uh, she really recently completed her PhD, which looked at how a Muslim woman's sister circle navigates socio politics and otherness, which sounds so cool. She's interested in exploring social interaction, how spaces of comfort and care are created and navigated, and minority languages. She also runs a small book club that focuses on works written by people of color and equally loves nature walks and fantasy books for some escapism. So, Hanane, thanks so much for taking the time to join the show today. Very, Thank you very for excited. having me. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to jump right in. So more and more Muslim authors are being published by mainstream publishers, uh, which is a double-edged sword. So on one hand, we have more diversity. We've got more own voices stories. On the other hand, we've also got a lot of internalized Islamophobia, reinforcing the same negative stereotypes about conservative religious Muslims that we already find in mass media. And obviously this is really problematic. And then on top of that, the internalized Islamophobia that we find in what I term to be Muslimic fiction. So it's, you know, written by Muslims. It's not necessarily Islamic, but obviously contains a lot of elements of, you know, Muslim cultures and of course, part of Islam itself. So this internalized Islamophobia can sometimes be subtle and sometimes it's definitely not. So there are often references about Wahhabis and Haram police. They tend to be scattered throughout a lot of novels. There's a lot of drawing the line between the good Muslim characters who are usually liberal and not overtly practicing and who tend to be quite secular versus the bad Muslims who are often painted as, you know, any and all religiously conservative Muslims, whether they are characters in the novel or not. So what are your thoughts on the prevalence of Muslim authors with internalized Islamophobia, colonialism, and racism, especially towards non-Western Muslims? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I I would like second everything that you've already just said in introducing the episode in terms of this kind of like internalized Islamophobia. And I think you've really touched on there is quite crucial. It's this kind of the good and bad binary of like the good Muslim, bad Muslim. And it's always put forward through that kind of like conservative versus liberal. And it's kind of like a paradox for me because it's like, like you said, it's it's really important and it's good that we have more own voices, uh, narratives that are put out there. But at the same time, there is this internalized Islamophobia that's kind of coming out. And I think that oftentimes those are the stories and narratives that are sold more because it draws in a a white audience because it feeds into that white gaze and my real concern is kind of this you know the just the ways in which white feminism weaponizes these narratives to kind of further other muslim women further perpetuate this kind of like oh muslim women are subjected to oppression by you know barbaric conservative muslim men and we must save them through white feminism yeah, and like just kind of one last thing I'd add to that is just in terms of that good and bad Muslim binary, there's a lot of this push of like 
the good Muslim is like not only liberal, but someone with like, you know, like who embodies this very whitewashed version of Sufism. Yes, the whole Rumi <laughs> effect, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I mean, like I say this as someone like I'm probably like inclined towards like Sufi traditions, but not like this kind of weird whitewashed version that we're seeing everywhere. And yeah, like, yeah, I guess that's kind of my my concerns in a nutshell. I would say that, yeah, definitely. So on the whole Rumi thing and the Sufi thing, I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's kind of related. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot that's been going around to pointing out the whole prevalence of fake Rumi quotes in a lot of books. Yeah. I believe like uh, in a fax books, um, there's another super popular book called Secrets of Divine Love. And that's been pointed out as like super problematic in the way that it utilizes yeah. Rumi quotes. There is, I literally went to a bookstore just last week and the entire Islam section was just five different covers of different collections of Rumi poetry. That was it. That's <laughs> all there was. Yeah. And was it a book or a paper that somebody wrote on how Rumi has been completely divorced from his Islam, right? To become palatable to a very Western white audience. Yeah. And And that's really seeped into how Muslims and Muslim writers have been portraying him as well. He is the kind of, the trendy kind of Muslim to portray, the trendy Sufi spiritualism that is divorced from the Islamic reality of of his history, of his time, of our Islamic history. And as you pointed out, with regards to white feminism in particular, and I definitely have noticed this from a lot of female authors of Muslim backgrounds. Maybe it's because I don't read as many male authors and I gravitate towards female authors in the first place, but there is definitely a lot of this in, in their fiction. And I've noticed it with adult fiction and even with young adult fiction, which I found very disappointing, where again, you have Mm -hmm. the whole setup of a brown, ethnic, kind of Muslim-y female main character, and she falls for the white boy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are like, honestly, I think these are like very typical kind of tropes that are just put out in these narratives. And like, you know, you have to question like, Obviously, this is not to kind of say that every single Muslim writer that's been published in every single narrative out there has only got there because of the fact that it feeds into the the white gaze. But there is something to be said about the fact that like the entire industry publishers, they're all run by white people. They're, I mean, majority of it. And so when we think about these narratives that are being given a platform, like overwhelmingly, it would you know, like stories that do feed into the white gaze are more likely to be taken on board. They're more likely to be given a chance. So yeah, it is. I I agree with you. It's very disappointing. So here's another question for you, which is on Mm. the topic of, you know, own voices writers Mm. versus the very, you know, the dominantly white publishing industry. What responsibility do you think that Muslim writers have? um, Mm -hmm. Or what role do they have in ensuring their their stories are told without being pressured by the publishers do you think that's even possible do you think that the only real solution is maybe just pursuing muslim publishers or indie publishers because that's an option but then there's Mm -hmm. no guarantee that the indie publishers are going to be any different either and i feel like that yeah your ideas on that then yeah i think that's really tricky because in a lot of like own voices stories it's a lot to do with kind of the experiences that the authors have had, like the writers have had. And so 
we like there needs to be a space for these stories to be told like you know people should have the opportunity to be able to tell their stories but how are those stories framed and i think that's where like you know like you step into murky waters that like you know if if publishers are overwhelmingly you know catered towards feeding into that white gaze and like you know they want like that muslim writer or the minority writer or like you know the person of color to write for them uh, to hit the diversity quota and just say oh look representation i think then you kind of really have to question them like okay so obviously publishers will be having certain kind of I don't know if conditions is the right word, but basically they'll have like a ground, like a, a framing through which that they want the story to be told. And the conversations that I've had with writers is that, yes, there is a lot of pressure that writers are under. So I'm talking about like published writers uh, who have published fiction novels. There is this pressure to kind of, you know, cater to the publisher's demands, but for certain things, there's only so much that they can do to put you under pressure. And so there, that's where I think like, okay, there are certain elements to the discourse through which a narrative is told, through which we talk about our traumas that need to be critiqued and looked a little bit more closely. And that's where like, so, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I, I, I don't know how many people who are listening be aware of a review I've written for like a book that, you know, I was, I was quite angry about when I read it, but it was in, in response to that book that, you know, there were, there were certain, like, there were like specific discourses that were put out about, you know, like stereotypes about Muslims, stereotypes about Arab people. You know, I use Arab as like a very broad category, just to speak in general terms here. And the response I got to that was that, you know, like some of the very specific stereotypes that were in there, like authors do have a certain amount of agency in how they then utilize those discourses, if that makes sense. So I think I think it's really hard. And I do wonder if certain if there are certain situations where authors just kind of are either in a rush to get published or feel that there's no other way other than to really jump in and like feed into the demands of these publishers and and you know their problematic demands just to ensure that they they do get published and they do you know like for for their career to progress so i mean i think the responsibility lies with both i think the fact that a lot of these narratives with internalized islamophobia are being put out is because of a problematic publishing industry it's because of like the institutional systemic discrimination that's inherent within it but to a certain degree, I do also question, is it worth, again, this is not to like, you know, say that Muslims should never publish anything ever. But like, I do sometimes question, like, is it really worth publishing a book if you know that your book is going to be filled and just littered with stereotypes? I, I just think it's really hard to kind of balance that that fine line. Yeah, and this is where I have a lot of questions, because on one hand, for me, the question arises, which is, why would an author be a Muslim author be so willing to pander to these mm. these ideas, especially yeah. when many of them know the damage that it causes? That's where I really struggle to have good faith perceptions of you know a certain author or you know books that they're writing. Because on yeah. one hand, as Muslim readership, whether you're academic or otherwise, it's very easy to identify people like Irshad Manji or Ayan Hirsi Ali as mm. you know 
clear cogs in the Islamophobic yeah. industry. And it's it's Absolutely. just very easy to be like, we know why they're doing this. And they're coming from yeah. a perspective, you know, my own experiences and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But we know they're making the big bucks because they're feeding into this, right? And there's mm-hmm. two examples of a much larger industry. And then we mm-hmm. have those authors who, I mean, they, they're not apostates or necessarily working for these Islamophobic organizations or think tanks. A lot of them are writing fiction. But again, that Islamophobia and those internalized ideas of colonialism are just so strong and so prevalent Mm. that it Mm. really makes you question, like, are you like, why are you doing this? And I feel like they are getting away with a lot and this is where i wonder as well the role of the muslim reader and the reviewer and whether we if we're able to stand up and call it out if that will make a difference yeah Um, because i mean the same book that that you just mentioned right i was i didn't even fully get through the book because (laughs) like every chapter that i read through i was like this is so wrong on so many levels there was like again the racism towards like mm-hmm. certain Arab groups and like particular ethnicities yeah there was again just the sheer Islamophobia there was a very clear framework of pandering like it literally opens up pandering to a white non-Muslim audience within yeah. the novel I was like how is this author who presumably is an intelligent woman not mm-hmm. able to recognize exactly what she's doing uh, yeah. and then when you know certain people did review it and gave an overwhelmingly like positive spin and I was just mind blown and this makes me question like I said the role of the Muslim reviewer and writer like on one hand I know especially in the Muslim bookstagram circles we want to support Muslim writers we want to have more of our stories published and that's absolutely valid and nobody is saying that we should be publishing stories that only portray us in a good light that's impossible but then we do have that responsibility even when working in stories about our traumas which again are perfectly valid narratives but then also being aware of essentially the trauma porn that is really popular for people of color whether muslim or non-muslim so much of that is literally just trauma porn that makes white people feel themselves and then you know adding in the muslim side to it reinforcing those ideas and stereotypes in a Hmm. pretty grossly general way which i find even worse then you know being able to say like this is a problem with like this particular character and framing like why and oftentimes like in real life when we see these experiences and we have these experiences in real life there's a lot behind it there is Mm. history of like immigration there's the history of Mm. the social political context of that person where they came from colonialism Exactly. Like colonialism <laughs> plays such a huge role. There's yeah. lack of Islamic education mm-hmm. and that's being conflated with culture, right? Mm-hmm. All those things. And it turns into like the perfect storm for abuse and for trauma, but it yeah. doesn't help our narratives. It doesn't help educate other people. It doesn't help raise genuine awareness about the situation when people want to turn yeah. it into such a reductive story. Exactly. So like the the thing for me is that the problem is not talking about our traumas. I think it's important to to do that, like, you know, as women to support each other and to hear hear each other's stories like that. Like, I, I don't have a problem with, but it's kind of like you said, it's reducing it to literally just problematize and pathologize specifically, uh, whether it's Muslim communities or 
specific ethnic communities. Like when, when we just specifically pathologize everything that sits outside the margins of whiteness, that's where the issue lies for me. And, you know, it's kind of like you said that like behind a lot of these kind of behind violence and trauma, it's not just the fact that like Muslim man, bad, violent, subjected woman to violence and woman is now traumatized and she found freedom and healing in whiteness. You know, like that's not, it's not that linear trajectory, you know, then, and that's the issue for me is like, and you know, it's really interesting. I'm not going to say who kind of made me think this, like just to kind of protect this person's privacy, but, you know, I was kind of having this discussion on a group that I'm on and a, a sister kind of, you know, she said to me, she was like, you know, I think we need to kind of maybe wonder, like, why is it that like where we often find it difficult to unpack our traumas outside of a framework that's kind of like built through whiteness, if that makes sense. And so like and then like, is it even possible to do that when we're kind of moving through these systems that basically are built for racial capitalism? And so, yeah, I I just I, I fully, fully agree with you. I think like when when we take such a reductive position. It's just so deeply problematic. And in terms of your point on like reviewers and honestly, like I do wonder if sometimes there's a benefit to having some distance between like you as a reviewer and you as a, and and someone as a writer, because I feel like that's something that bookstagram, like Instagram or, you know, it kind of blurs the lines a little bit. And I've really been like reflecting on that a lot lately that like, if that proximity between reviewers and writers is actually a healthy thing, is it easier or maybe more productive to be able to have those critical conversations when there is a bit of distance between you as a reviewer and the writers? Having said that, I do feel, I feel that like when books are so littered with problematic tropes and we completely gloss over that in reviews, I don't know. That's just something that I find I find quite difficult. And I, I do empathize with, you know, situations where reviewers are very close to like, you know, they have proximity to writers and it's difficult to do. But yeah, it's, it's just it's something that I find quite difficult to kind of, I don't know, I guess, metabolize in, in my mind, if that makes sense. I don't know if metabolize is the it right word. But... It essentially boils down to conflict of interest, right? Because yeah. whether it's, and, and this is something for those who aren't in the quote unquote bookstagram loop, it tends to be a, quite a tight knit community where there are a lot of connections mm-hmm. between writers and reviewers and readers and even publishers, you know, or representatives yeah. of publishers. And that's something I'm very interested in observing and Mm. noting how that impacts a lot of the work that goes forth. Because what's interesting, especially right now, is that there is such a burgeoning movement for having, especially Muslim women writers, like producing a lot of Muslim fiction. And Mm. it's a living process. Like they've just published their first novels. You know, there's a lot of like marketing and engaging with fans and readers and reviewers the feedback that they get is then going to inform their next few Mm -hmm. works. And this can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing, especially when, as you said, if a reader or a viewer has too close of a connection to the writer and that hinders their ability to provide genuine, constructive, critical feedback that might not be pleasant to hear, that might not be welcome, but it is necessary to have. And kind of related to that, really, I wanted to delve into 
why do you think there are so many Muslim writers whose stories are perpetuating Islamophobic and colonialist ideas? Like on one hand, we almost expect it from non-Muslims when they want to like exotify our stories or, you know, come in as white saviors. When I, whenever I see a book that has, you know, people of color, but the story is written by a white person, I kind of brace myself because mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, it's a train wreck. But then when yeah. I see, you know, an ethnic name attached to the story, I'm like, okay, at least this will be more authentic. But then you open it up and you're like, oh my God, this is just as bad, if not more so. And then what really crushes me is if I do research on the author or I'm already familiar with the author, I'm like, I know they know better. I know they're aware of these particular lines of thought and the way it impacts the greater circle. And then again, depending on one's connection to the writer, like it really puts you in a place of, I know they know better but are they going to take this feedback? And then you're wondering, like, why would they do this? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's just something that I've, I mean, it saddens me, you know, that like, again, I guess it then comes back to like who publishers open up space to, because I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of Muslim writers there, especially Muslim women who are critical and who do have narratives that, you know, would be very beneficial for not just for for Muslims, but for non-Muslims to read as well. And I just fear that, you know, they probably don't, you know, get the same opportunities because their narratives don't fit a particular framing. But honestly, I don't even know how to answer that question in terms of like why there are so many narratives like that in terms of why there's such an internalization of Islamophobia. I do feel that there is a very kind of in terms of that internalizing Islamophobia, that's like very prevalent of like this good, good, bad Muslim binary. And that's sadly perpetuated by Muslims as well. And I just, I guess that's, that's kind of like translating into like <laughs> all these different kind of stereotypes that are being written into narratives. But really, I guess it's just like these internal biases are being written into, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of these writers don't intend to right in a certain way but it's you know like they're unconscious I mean I don't like the term unconscious bias but maybe it is these like internal biases that are just being written into their narratives and they don't even realize what's being done yeah I think it's a really it's like a difficult one to be honest I'm gonna just throw like a few examples for readers in particular who are wondering like okay how does this internalized Islamophobia show up like what are we talking about so I tend to read mostly adult fiction or YA, but I've also delved into like, you know, some middle grade fiction. And so there were a few books recently that I read where it really made me think where, again, the authors are Muslim and come from Muslim backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And it really made me question again, like how they're, how they themselves feel comfortable writing in this way. So there's one book, it's a middle grade book, it's called Amina's Voice, and it's about a young Pakistani American girl, and she loves to sing, and there's going to be, I think, like a school concert or something, and then there's also the flip side where she's also like really shy though, and she's also going to, you know, a song school, like Sunday Madrasa kind of thing, and they're doing Quran, and then they have this uncle who comes from Pakistan, and he's like more conservative and more religious, and he's immediately painted as the bad guy, and, mm-hmm. you know, like the kind of like the disrespect that Amina, the main character, it shows towards this character 
like her uncle and the resentment. And then he's really pointed, he's made the bad guy because he tells her parents like, oh, you know, music's haram, so she shouldn't be doing this. And I know there's obviously like lots of difference of opinion between Muslims about this whole situation. But what really upset me was because it was the way it was set up. Like, oh, because he holds this opinion, he is bad. He is the example of somebody who is like so extreme and he's intolerant and he is you know inserting himself in this girl's life and he's just trying to oppress her and make her life miserable right Mm -hmm. and it falls into that narrative again of like the conservative muslim man who comes in and wants to throw around this weight and this authority when there could have been a way to create like the conflict necessary in the story without playing into that stereotype so you know even just being like yeah being able to work in things like there are muslims who do hold the opinion that music is haram but they're not going to start like yelling at people and telling people they should be changing their decisions mm-hmm. that. Like, most muslims i know who hold that opinion including myself are like all right like i'm not going to do it for myself but like y'all can do your own thing you know mm-hmm. and it was jarring for me because again when you're reading this presumably to young children right we're talking about literally like elementary school age children my daughter's in that age group she's 10 years old and i had bought the book originally for her and we started reading it and then i stopped because i was like wow this is not okay because like we're literally the bad guys yeah. in, in this framework and then you know you move on to like other ya titles such as no true believer by Rabia Lombard. And I actually really enjoyed the story as it was. But again, it was the whole not very religious Muslim girl in this case. And then, you know, there's a white boy that she's kind of interested in and falls for. And there's, you know, references, just very disparaging references to Haram police and lines about like Wahhabis in a very politically inaccurate way to begin with and it wasn't even necessary to the story that was another thing that really drives me nuts when they like slide those things in there it has no relevance to the actual story but it's just there to make a point that these muslims are the good ones because they're secular because they don't follow all these rules because they are more amenable to quote unquote the west as if you know that's the only kind of western muslim to begin with versus Mm. those other ones over there Uh, Mm. who are religious and conservative and bad and are terrorists or or whatever it may be. And it really, especially when it comes to middle grade and YA fiction, it really makes me wonder, like, what is the benefit here? You're literally, like, trying to slip into the minds of of young children, reinforcing narratives that already exist about us. Like, and that's what really bothers me. It's literally throwing other Muslims under the bus, right? And this is... For young audiences, then you move on to onto adult fiction. And so like hijab and red lipstick was just horrible. There is also The Good Muslim, which has been around for a long time. But that mm-hmm. one too, like the overwhelming narrative is like the main character who's like this religious Bengali man. And it's not even set in the West. It's all set like in Bangladesh. But again, it's very very heavily emphasizing that if you're a bad person you're going to be religious and that that informs your badness and the violence that you act out on others mm-hmm. and again it, it's just it's literally like throwing your people under the bus and why you know yeah it is i mean it is like an internalization a hundred percent internalization of its islamophobia and like 
that good bad binary. I remember a few years ago now, I went to this uh, Muslim literature festival in London and Elif Shafak was doing a talk and she gave this whole spiel about like her, you know, her childhood, her childhood history where like she had one of her grandmothers on like either her mom or dad's side was, she said, conservative on the other side was progressive. And that like, she basically, I can't remember exactly what she said, but but she very much pandered to that same dichotomy and basically framed everything that was like as far away from like being Western and like as much as like being kind of very visibly Muslim and like, you know, having like externalized Muslim markers, you know, like whether it's wearing a headscarf and like even things like committing to like Islamic rituals, you know, that was just being ridiculed. And on on the other side, you know, this grandmother who's a very, you know, who's a Sufi and, and very much kind of like the image she portrayed was of that, like, you know, typical Western Islamic mystic. Um, and I literally say Western Islamic mystic, mystic in the sense of like, you know, what we're, what you mentioned earlier in, in terms of like, sorry, excuse me, um, the Westernization, um, yeah, the Westernization of, of Rumi and that whole like trajectory of like, you know, like Sufi Islam, Islamic mysticism and whatever. And so she was then drawn to this like progressive grandmother and like saying, oh, we need to be accepting of each other. And it was, and I was like, it's just so interesting how kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Contradictory that whole narrative was because in, in saying we need to be accepting, she was also pandering to this binary of like the good and bad Muslim. And deliberately excluding, right? Like that's what really gets me. There is a, a deliberate exclusion of people who don't fit with the side of the binary that you you're taking yeah yeah exactly and like just even even for example with you know hijab and red lipstick at the end like the the writer kind of says how she found healing through islamic feminism and what what i find troubling in the way that it was all framed was that just that like this first of all that freedom was found in the west through through whiteness Mm -hmm. and it's as though like Islam in itself is like not not it it's just not sufficient. In, it's in just not like, enough, and it and it's exactly. the cause of the harm. That's another thing yeah. that's kind of implied. If exactly. I have this this Western paradigm to operate within and adapt to my yeah. particular identity, I'd still be oppressed because of them. Yeah, yeah, and and you know that's that's not to say that like you know, some of the writings in Islamic feminism, there are things that I've learned from a lot myself as well, but I'm very, I'm also very aware in the ways in which these are weaponized to serve white feminism, you know, like Mona Al-Tahawi is like a perfect example for that, you know? And again, it's not to negate the traumas that women go through, but it's kind of like, at what point, like, what will it take for you to just kind of step back a little and just think like, who is consuming my trauma right now? You know, and, and who is then weaponizing my trauma? That's, exactly. that's the issue that I have. The weaponizing is, I think, the biggest part for me. Because I'm not going to lie, I am all about working through one's trauma, using writing as a tool for mm. healing. And I think that's very valuable. But again, keeping in mind your audience, keeping in mind how it's going to be used, especially when you consider the way that these works are then it's not just like oh these are novels that are going out and people are just reading them for fun they're often used in academic settings to make mm-hmm. a point 
to perpetuate certain ideas, to really, really push our, a certain narrative, especially a gendered narrative. And that's where I want to sign yeah. into the way that Muslim men are portrayed mm-hmm. in fiction. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the very prevalent idea of, you know, if he is Eastern or of Eastern background, if he's trying to reconnect with his faith or his roots in any way, that's immediately like a red flag warning sign. Mm-hmm. The more external religious markers he has or even cultural markers he has, they're automatically going to be negative. And it makes me sad because obviously women are not the only consumers of fiction and and literary works like men are too and Mm. so what does this say to the men reading these books yeah and then what does it say to us as well because we are already living in this world where we have like the external islamophobia right that's already Mm. targeting us whether it's like the media or popular culture whatever it may be and then there is this this internalized islamophobia it's like again like an inward internal fight between ourselves as well as an external mm. one. And we do focus a lot on women and how we're impacted. And obviously that's like a massive thing. That's something I'm very invested in, but we pay very little attention to how that impacts like Muslim boys and Muslim men mm-hmm. and their representation in fiction or pop culture or whatever it mm-hmm. may be, like in any kind of representation, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. And I guess the my question to you would be, what are the ways that you think or that you have seen that Muslim men have been demonized and the impact that this has at large? Well, I mean, it's just basically, you know, first of all, I don't deny patriarchy exists. I don't deny misogyny exists. Like, I think I would be lying if I said that. But the it's limiting toxic masculinity and patriarchy just to Muslim men and literally orientalizing Muslim men as like, Muslim women ourselves and I think you know I I'm very much aware of this double bind that like Muslim women are in in that like we're kind of battling Islamophobia like the external Islamophobia that you're talking about we're kind of battling patriarchy within our own communities in the same way that white women will be battling patriarchy within their communities right like and in us battling patriarchy in our communities that's just like you know consumed entirely by white feminism to kind of keep doubling down on their Islamophobia. But I definitely like, I think there is sadly this issue of, you know, a lot of Muslim writers in these types of narratives. And it's almost like limiting toxic masculinity to Muslim men and then finding liberation with white men. You know, again, it's like literally we ourselves are feeding into white saviorism in that way. Mm-hmm. And my, I do have a concern for like, you know, young boys reading, you know, reading these things and these narratives. And also in terms of like, even men, like, I don't know. I just think it's, it's just sad. Like, you know, I, I have a nephew now and I probably think about these things a lot more deeply now than what I would have before he was born. But I do really think that like, for example, hijab and red lipstick, what would he feel if he read that book? And this isn't about like appeasing Muslim men. This isn't about like giving them comfort and coddling them through patriarchy. That's not what it is at all. Right. But I think it's literally just limiting toxic masculinity to Muslimness, to Islam as well, and to like a practice of Islam that 
you know, where, where men do have like, you know, external markers of, you know, Muslimness or any, any kind of like overt Muslimness, mm-hmm. that's really troubling to me. And also, I don't mean to say that like, we should be glossing over the problems that we face. We should be glossing over our traumas. But it's being able to discuss them in a holistic way, right? Like yeah. if we're focusing With on nuance. one to the exclusion of the other, we're not really helping anyone either. Like I yeah. find that or I've suspected that these constant negative portrayals of Muslim men in narratives just feeds into a sense of resentment that they have then. Like there is no sense of of allyship anymore. It's literally like, oh well, these women then they're like all the victims and we're all the bad guys. Why should I care? You know, mm-hmm. no matter what I do, even if I'm like a totally decent Muslim guy who is just trying to help my family and trying mm-hmm. to do better it doesn't matter because i don't exist in these narratives yeah you know? and it it almost like reinforces that problem when there's no recognition of any nuance when there's no recognition mm-hmm. of i don't want to say like i don't want to fall into the whole like oh the nice muslim man or mm-hmm. the nice guy thing but just the reality of having of the fact that so many like supportive muslim men exist or muslim men yeah. who are doing their part and they're fighting islamophobia on multiple different levels as well yeah um, i mean the state violence like you know they're subjected to a lot of like you know terrible you know violent iterations of islamophobia it's it's you know so it's like not it's not subtle yes and, exactly. yeah and so it's just it's nuance like that's what's missing i feel in in a lot of these narratives and it's really sad because like someone messaged me about like a, you know, a book in which basically this image of like a quote unquote conservative Muslim man is basically demonized. And and they messaged me saying it breaks my heart because they're describing my husband, who's a very good, he's a good man. Mm-hmm. But the image that people are left with from reading this is that people like my husband, just because they look a certain way, you can deduce that they will they will behave in a certain way and you know that they they are oppressive and yeah that's just i don't know i just think it's so tricky and i think it's just such a shame that there's such a at the minute i personally feel a, a satur i mean you know i i tend to read either fantasy or or nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, but my perception you know from the you know how much i've dabbled into like these these fictional stories written by muslim authors i feel that they're kind of there is like a gradual saturation of these narratives that do feed into like this white gaze and just you know like we pathologize ourselves yeah it's it's just troubling one example that comes to mind that I personally found most disappointing because I love this book. It's Aisha at Last by Uzma mm-hmm. Jalaluddin. And it's a Canadian Pakistani take on Pride and Prejudice, which I thought was so charming. And the entire book is very well written. I mm-hmm. loved it. I thought it was a great example of own voices. But then at the very end, the Muslim Mr. Darcy character, Khalid, so he is portrayed as you know, as very conservative, you know, he's socially awkward, he grows a beard, he'll like wear shawakam, he's in a thobe outside and even in, in work and things like that. And that's like part of his, his Darcy persona, right? And, you know, the story continues and it's really great, whatever. But then at the very end, he's transformed into like shaving his beard, into 
wearing Western mm-hmm. clothing and like a, a recurring theme is how like you know as per many conservative muslim men and women you know like lowering the gaze when you're you know dealing with the opposite gender no physical contact with the opposite gender these are found fairly standard normative behaviors between many muslims right mm-hmm. and, and it's never overtly said like oh this is bad but in the end he's changed into like again almost like another person where all of a sudden he's like shaking hands with non-mahram women to kind of like prove mm-hmm. a point. Like now he's reached his Darcy transformation where he is mm-hmm. now worthy of the Muslim mm-hmm. Elizabeth. And that mm-hmm. really, really bothered me and made me so upset because yeah. it felt dishonest to the character in the first place. But mm-hmm. then on top of that, what is this telling us about yeah. Muslim men and what makes them worthy and not worthy of something like, like love? And a happy yeah, ending. Yeah. Like, why is it that the only time that a Muslim man can be seen as acceptable is when he casts off all these external markers and internalized like faith mm. practices? Mm-hmm. And so that made me really sad. And that was something that I didn't catch on till till a while after. I was just thinking about. It. I'm like, wait a second. We would never accept this in a case of you know with women, even from secular literary perspective. Yeah. In rom-coms now, we have enough awareness that the whole ugly duckling having a magical makeover mm. is problematic, right? Mm-hmm. For a female character to now become worthy of, of love and, and being desired. Yeah. That's problematic. Yeah. Why are we not extending this? Like, yeah. why are we not recognizing the fact that it's equally problematic when we switch it the other way? Yeah. And also that, that like, that transformation is through the shedding of Muslims. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's what made it even more troubling and problematic and and sad because do we really want to be telling muslim men that the only way that you are acceptable is if you're no longer visibly muslim men or 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 muslim men like you have to you have to put aside your islam in order to be worthy and acceptable and this plays into the narratives that we're already dealing with in the real world yeah, and I think this is like such an important point because we're in a, we're living in a world where there's surveillance of Muslims going on. And Muslims, in terms of their Muslimness, is being policed so that, you know, like we're less of a risk when we are that quote-unquote moderate good Muslim. Mm-hmm. And any kind of conservativeness that that's shown, then, you know, you're, you're kind of more at risk to be surveilled i mean you know first of all all muslims are probably being surveilled (laughs) but like there is this policing that's happening and i read this like really interesting paper recently called um i think it's called producing internal suspects and how like so you know so basically as muslims we are like this suspect community in you know a myriad of different contexts it's not Mm -hmm. just in in like the u.s canada or the uk and it's just, it just re- it's really interesting to me that like, it's almost as if in these narratives, we're kind of doing the same thing. We are reproducing these internal suspects by saying that like, you know, we're Muslim, but amongst us, there are those who are more suspect yes. because they have external markers of Muslimness. And these are the things you need to look for. And what's sad is that like in, in that paper, it talks about how like people are policing their own behaviors. So they're mitigating their Muslimness for their own safety which is a very real thing, you know, I completely, I can empathize with that. Like, you know, I, I don't wear hijab, but 
I'm very aware of the fact that the way that I move through the world as a Muslim woman, as a non-hijabi is very different to someone who wears hijab or niqab. And so there is this kind of like in self-policing that's happening, not for like a disavowal of like Islam that like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up my Muslimness, but it's like a real case of, you know, for a real concern of one's personal safety. And I think like these narratives can be so damaging in that regard because it's then reinforcing that narrative to to those who could potentially already be self-policing. And yeah, that kind of sits equally for women and men in terms of that, you know, like producing that internal internal suspect. It's frustrating, <laughs> you know, and yeah, I just think as tricky as it is, I think it's important to be having these conversations because we need to find this balance where we're able to tell our stories without being so reductive about it, that we're able to talk about our traumas and to heal from our traumas without, you know, by being a bit mindful towards who is consuming our trauma, like, you know, to not, not to forget the history of colonialism and the historical trajectories that have built the world that we're living in today, or like not to forget racial capitalism and not to like neoliberalize readership in that, like, I have my opinion and like, I'm like, I can say what I want. I can review and something however I want without even thinking about like, if someone's reading what I'm writing, they might actually take on board what I'm saying. And then like, you know, form an opinion based on what I'm saying and, you know, kind of withholding. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's very tricky, but I think it's important to have these uncomfortable conversations because there are real people who are bearing the brunt of these narratives. And I feel like as Muslims, as important as it is for us, especially as Muslim women, to be able to talk about our traumas and move through them and heal them. And like you said, you know, for a lot of people, that's healing through writing. But we do also need to like take stock of like, who are we traumatizing in the process of writing about our traumas? That's a really good way of phrasing it. Like, who are we traumatizing in the process of of sharing and revealing our traumas and in what way. And I think this is the really important set of, uh, I guess, lenses to keep in mind when we're writing and reading these stories, because as you said, like this is now a living experience and more, more and more Muslims are writing and being published, which again is amazing, which is great, which we need, but then how that's being done really matters. And I think having these conversations between ourselves and in the wider book-ish community is mm. so important because I think in, in many ways, like we underestimate the influence that we have. And mm. if more writers are aware that they are going to be held accountable, there's going to be more of a pause before they kind of get away with these things. Mm-hmm. And there is more pressure in publishing now too, to have more representative voices yeah. and so on and so forth. And we do need to be able to feel comfortable to hold these people accountable. Like we are literally the consumers. We're the ones giving them our money. We should be the ones who are able to tell them, look, if you yeah. keep producing these narratives, we're not going yeah. to yeah. give you our money. It's not going to be profitable for you. And this is why. Yeah. And I, and I think like, I think that these discussions don't mean that we don't hold space for reflection and for writers to take a step back to think think about, you know, what, what's been written, what they've produced and like to kind of move forward and to like 
you know, be more receptive to the feedback that they've gotten. I fully, I fully respect that. I think we all make mistakes. I know I've definitely made mistakes in my life. You know, when I started my PhD, I was in my mid twenties and like, I was so eager to kind of like, not necessarily to make a name for myself, but I was just so eager to like, just be like, I'm doing this research. I have to like, you know, like represent, you know, like that kind of whole thing. And like, I've definitely made mistakes along the way, but I think the the best thing anyone has ever done for me has been that they've held space for me to kind of, you know, they've, they've told me how they felt. Honestly, sometimes that feedback has been quite blunt and like difficult to listen, but because they held that space for me, then like I was, I was able to kind of recenter and just think like, okay, like, I think I'm just getting lost in the system a little bit. I need to take a step back and like, you know, rethink what am I doing here? What is like, how is my work going to be of benefit to myself and others, you know? And I think that's like, I think that's kind of like the beauty of Islam as well, is that like, we're, we're taught that like, you know, like not to just kind of eternally judge someone for an error. That doesn't mean that you don't hold people to account either. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And like, I just, I just feel that. I don't know, because again, it comes back to that, like the blurred lines on like, you know, spaces like Instagram between like writers and reviewers and, and, you know, I guess also like, because of how difficult it can be to publish, we don't know how long a writer's journey has been in trying to publish a book. Maybe that they've like, they're, they're so exhausted by the end of it mm-hmm. that like, you know, they're just like, I, I need to, like, I've been working on this for years. This Like, this is the only way I can get it published. You know, maybe there's that too. And like, I do empathize with it, but you know, I, I will also like not hold back from critiquing such outputs. Yeah. I just, I just feel that we should be able to hold people to account. And that, I think that's, that's been like my frustration recently with that book with hijab and red lipstick was like the, how every like left, right and center, I was seeing positive reviews and I I barely saw anyone pulling up on the the flaws in it and it's like you know okay we can appreciate that like this person has like written about trauma mm-hmm. and, and that's really hard to do like to have you know like these traumas out in the open for people to read like that can't be easy but we should also be you know paying attention to really really damaging discourses like exceptionally damaging discourses yes. like borderline eugenics right yes. like yeah that was a huge thing yeah like we, we should we should be able to but yeah like like i said earlier like i think you know these these conversations will never be comfortable and you know i think initially my reaction was like full blazed anger um, <laughs> that was like to every page i was like couldn't this could yeah. this get worse and then it did and i was like how <laughs> yeah and so like that's kind of where my review came from it was like a place of total fury and then like i had some time to reflect and like you know i learned a bit more about the author's circumstances and i was like okay okay like i need to just like relax <laughs> <laughs> i had to take a bit of a step back but i don't I don't take back my critiques in terms of like the yeah. the problematics of the book. They they are there. And I really hope that with everything that's happened, like the aftermath of it, that the author, just with like every other, like the, the examples that you put forward as well, that, you know, these authors are listening to our concerns as readers, as mm-hmm. a collective. And like, inshallah, like, you know, I, I, I genuinely 
wish them the best in that like their future projects that you know they're able to be a lot more nuanced and critical in conveying their stories because ultimately what we want are are more stories that are just mm. more nuanced like are authentic and nuanced and ex- acknowledge the reality the very complex reality that we all live in and the mm. fact that this is a living relationship between writers and readers and the way that the books are going to impact us on a personal level and are going to impact us on a community level again like a lot of people are going to find that these books are used in academia to prove a point to even argue against us and be like well one of your people said this about you so are you calling them a liar you know these are the frameworks that these narratives end up existing in and being weaponized in and then we have to deal with that fallout we have to deal with the overarching impact of that i mean just think about Hussaini's books right like Mm. they became so incredibly popular and Mm. again it was portrayed as well here is you know one of the own voices and fairly recently i believe in the muslim bookstagram circles anyway there was a little more examination into Mm. the biases and the prejudices that exist within his books and the political background of those books and as somebody who read those books like years ago when they first came out, again, like for, for fun, essentially, like I thought they were good stories, but there mm-hmm. was something that I couldn't place my finger on at the time. And the explanation made so much sense. And it also explained why so many Western readers bubbled yeah. it up, right? Yeah. And yeah. How that informed the view of so many Western non-Muslim readers about Afghanistan and about what happened there. And yeah. it was so politically inaccurate yeah. in so many ways. And then he was like, how... There's literally no way to undo that kind of damage. Yeah, yeah. I had like a similar kind of trajectory with Khaled Hussein as well. And and the other one, I think it was like the same person, uh, the same kind of account that analyzed Khaled Hussein also analyzed Elif Shafak's work. And I only read The 40 Rules of Love. And I I'm read that one. I'm just was... reading that now. And I'm already... I know. Like, I'm really excited to hear from your views. <laughs> I'm really excited to see your review for that. Um, but I, I read that book when I was like in my early 20s and I was going through a really like a bad time in my life. And I just like soaked that that up like a sponge. And I was like, this is so great. And then I just like put it away for a long, long time. And then I picked it up like, and in my mind, I was like, oh, it's a, it's a nice book. It's a, like, I really like, it. I enjoy it. And then, yeah, a few years ago, I just like, it was on my bookshelf and I picked it up and I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> You know, I was like, why did I just take this narrative up and like not even question it at all? Like, and I've never read like any any other of Elif Shafak's books because I'm like, I'm scared to in a way. Like, I'm just like, what am I going to read? Like, what it's going to aggravate me? I know a I lot read of people... Daughters of Eve. I think that was the first yeah. book of hers that I read. And I was epically unimpressed. Honestly, right. I was kind of confused because like, you know, she's such a big name. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so I was expecting something more substantial and then it wasn't and I was just like wait how yeah I mean I know a lot of people who are like big fans of hers like and like people who are like generally quite critical 
So uh, yeah, I, I don't really know. Like I've just, I'm just scared to pick pick <laughs> any of my books up. I, I'm just going to leave it. Like, yeah, um, honestly, I feel like once you've been thoroughly traumatized by a particular <laughs> work, you're just like, I can't put myself through that again. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, and I think, I think it was also like that, that talk that she gave as well that I went to and like, mm-hmm. It was kind of like a slow, like a slow, a slow marination for me. Like when after her talk, and then I was like, after a while, I was like, oh, wait, wait, she said this, like, <laughs> like you know, my brain was like just it like slowly processes yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like I'm just a bit like uh, wary of like reading her books, but yeah, like also just kind of going back to like that point you made about how these narratives are taken up in like academic circles and like certain points are made in these spaces. For me, there's also like a concern that these stories are also taken up at a policy level by governments and like securitization is just like, you know, further justified. And like, that's kind of my main, like, you know, that we need to really think through these things that it's not just something that's going to affect people at an individual level. Like this is like at a state level we're talking about here. And again, you know, there is that double line that us Muslim women have to go through. And, And actually like as Muslims, as a whole, I think there's like such a big burden that we carry and that we can't just live like everything is weighted with the potential to be weaponized against us. And that's not easy. Like it's, it's, it's heavy, like it's a heavy existence. And, you know, there are a number of intersections that come into play as well in, in, in terms of the weightiness of it all. But I think, yeah, just nuance man that's like nuance (laughs) yeah yeah I think like at the end of the day can all essentially be boiled down to accountability accountability on the part Mm. of writers to produce works that that are authentic to them but again that are also authentic and reflective of that very complex reality that we all live in and that we are all impacted by and then as readers holding our writers to account whether or not we have close relationships with them. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I feel that having a connection to a Muslim writer can actually be beneficial if we are willing to have these very uncomfortable conversations, right? And it doesn't have to go bad. It doesn't have to be, you know, scathing reviews all the time. Mm -hmm. And I believe in honest reviews. I write my reviews pretty brutally sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I do want ultimately just for us to do better. And if I can have a connection with an author and be like, hey, you know, I really hope you can hear this from me, but like X, Y, Z are issues that exist. And you could do so much better and I want you to do better. And, you know, you can help so many more people by providing a better narrative next time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And then there has to be willingness on the author's part to take that in. I mean, I know a few authors where, I mean, I've been compromised by my relationship to them and knowing that they don't take criticism well at all. So that's obviously tricky. And then holding publishers to account. And the best way to do that is both through our reviews and through the power of our of our wallets ultimately yeah. they want to sell things and make money and that's why mm-hmm. we're seeing i think like simon shuster has an entire division called salam reads for mm-hmm. grade young adult stories about muslims and it's wildly successful which is why they're publishing more and more stories which is great again but then being able to impact the kinds of stories that are going to be published that really matters mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. So and I think like no, yeah like on. what you said about like authors being willing to listen and take that on board I think that's definitely a thing because I know like 
I know of instances where, you know, friends of authors have tried to like convey their concerns, like through the writing process and after something's been written and like, you know, the author hasn't really necessarily been as receptive during the writing process as they may have been after like seeing a, a specific aftermath in response to like the publishing of their book. And then like someone really made like a good, good kind of point when I was kind of going through that whole like anger about hijab and red lipstick was that how authors have a bit of protection when they're agented. And I, you know, I wonder if like there is that vulnerability that a lot of Muslim writers may have as well, like when they're initially starting off that like because they don't have agents, they don't really have someone to help them navigate through, you know, and, and like I can imagine it must be quite daunting to be publishing a book by yourself without any like direct support because like you don't know how much you can push the publishers. But then like, you know, I guess like that that could potentially lead to problems if agents aren't really critical themselves like I think I think it's just like such a complicated web (laughs) it is it is like an entire system really and this is why to having Muslim agents I think is super important exactly and just from my very very shallow level of understanding like there are maybe a handful of Muslim agents in the publishing industry that are like Mm -hmm. scattered about and those who have those Muslim writers who have Muslim agents who are understanding have been able to produce amazing works, which I think is really cool and an example of how things can go very, very right and something that we should be pushing for more and more, right? But then again, on the flip side, you have those who, again, where the agents themselves are probably influential and being like, this isn't going to sell. You need to work this angle more. And it tends to be the homophobic white savior angle or whatever it may be. So yeah, end of the day, how do you think that we'll be able to move forward in terms of the narratives that Muslims produce in fiction? I think, first of all, having these uncomfortable conversations, because I know that like I've made people feel very uncomfortable with my review. I know that I've been having uncomfortable conversations with friends about it too. And like, you know, I think like there's a mutual appreciation in the sense that like we've been able to move through that discomfort. But I think that's kind of a starting point, holding writers to account as well and holding space for them to better in future, to listen. But yeah, I think this is kind of like a bigger, like a bigger issue of like institutional, like systemic whiteness. And I feel like until that's not dismantled, I think it's like a really long road ahead and like probably a while before we start getting more like a more kind of more volumes of these like you know critical nuanced narratives and what we're seeing now well i guess here's hoping we get there eventually inshallah. Inshallah. I think we, are, we are making some progress you know so for sure for sure just keep having these uncomfortable conversations and hope that <laughs> people are listening <laughs> hope so so jazakallah khair Again, thank you so much for taking the time to be here, to have this conversation. I think it was really great and something that I hope that everyone is able to appreciate and think about whether or not there are readers or writers of these kinds of stories, Mm -hmm. um, and especially fictional narratives, which I have a particular vested interest in. And these are conversations that, again, hopefully even those who are in publishing might be listening in on us and taking notes, I hope. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. (laughs) All right. Well, dear listeners, please let us know what you think and any questions that you might have for myself or Hanein, drop them in the comments. 
and we will absolutely be very excited to respond. So take care, Hanayin. Jazak Thank you. You too. Thank you. And dear listeners, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.